Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. This episode is supported by the FX original series, Reservation Dogs. From Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi, Reservation Dogs is a half-hour comedy that follows the adventures of four indigenous teens in rural Oklahoma. Reservation Dogs, now streaming exclusively FX on Hulu. The stories we're sharing this season touch on different kinds of trauma. Please take care of yourself while you listen. In the past few episodes, we've met some of the foster parents and states who make up the federal lawsuit, Brackeen v. Holland. And that lawsuit wouldn't exist without them. But it also wouldn't exist without the special interest groups that are working behind the scenes. Our investigation followed the money and found three main groups behind the attack on ICWA. Corporate lawyers, right-wing funding, and private adoption attorneys. This episode, we're starting with the adoption attorneys because they've been fighting ICWA longer than anyone else. For decades, Native leaders have accused the adoption industry of not following ICWA, of not following the law. But most adoption cases are private, so it's hard to know what's really going on. We were trying to find a way inside when a background source told me about this couple, an adoptive couple who were willing to talk. If you were to rewind to two years ago, we probably also were, were thinking that it's like a parent who doesn't want, to, doesn't want to raise the child, and then you have a family that wants to have a child, and it feels like that's the win-win that, that they're describing. But, you know, I think now we feel a lot more... We feel like it's a lot more complicated than that. This couple, who we'll call Jamie and Todd, really wanted their first child to have a sibling. But a year and a half after their son was born, Jamie was still recovering from birth injuries. So they decided to grow their family through adoption. Once they got through the paperwork, the home study, and the upfront fees, they started getting emails with profiles of pregnant people. And they noticed something strange. Jamie and Todd live in New Hampshire, but... Almost all of the profiles of moms we were sent were from Arizona. Through word of mouth, they had hired an adoption attorney in New Hampshire. And he worked with a lawyer in Arizona who helped find and represent birth moms. Every other family they know who went through that New Hampshire lawyer... Their child has come from Arizona. And, I, and that's like at least a dozen families, I'd say, that we know of. The other thing Jamie and Todd noticed was that the majority of the babies were children of color. Jamie and Todd are white. I don't remember anyone except maybe the New Hampshire one having a, like, white mom, white dad end of story. And in those emails, Jamie and Todd saw something else. Native babies being listed with no mention of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And when you guys, like, were learning about the adoption process and, like, went to seminars and stuff like that, did you learn about the Indian Child Welfare Act? 
No. No. We, no one ever mentioned it. We were told or if there's a native child, there's a law called ICWA and it will be more expensive. But those children are so beautiful, that's, is what yeah, they said. Yes, that's true. <laughs> You're listening to This Land, a podcast about the present-day struggle for Native rights. From Crooked Media, I'm your host, Rebecca Nagel, citizen of Cherokee Nation. This season, we're following how a string of custody battles over Native children became a federal lawsuit that threatens everything from tribal sovereignty to civil rights. Big organizations that represent the adoption industry, like the National Council for Adoption and the American Academy of Adoption Attorneys, have taken the position that ICWA shouldn't exist. ICWA is one of the many laws in this country that regulates adoption. And the adoption industry, like a lot of other industries, frequently fights regulation. The industry wants more children to be available for adoption, not less. And that's because it's facing a real problem. It feels wrong to say this about human children, but it's the truth. The problem is supply and demand. So prior to Roe v. Wade, there were a significantly higher number of people who were choosing adoption or in some cases really forced to place their children for adoption. This is Susan Dusha Geta Lexander, agency director at PACT, an adoption agency that serves children and families of color. By the 1980s, women had access to the pill and abortion, and it was more acceptable to have a child outside of marriage. So the number of babies available for adoption fell by a lot. But demand continued to go up. One reason was that evangelical Christian churches started promoting what they called orphan care as an important ministry. You might remember that's how Jennifer Brackeen talked about fostering on her blog. Adoption agencies fixed the supply and demand problem by looking to other countries— By the mid-2000s, a record number of American families were using international adoption, and the industry was booming. But after the boom came the bust. Yeah, a number of countries have stopped allowing U.S. citizens to adopt their children because of issues of neglect and abuse of those children, reports of fraud, widespread, you know, bribery, and as well as, you know, some high-profile murders and deaths of adopted children from other countries. One by one, countries like Guatemala and Ethiopia closed their borders to American families. Some adoption agencies went out of business, which is why in their list of adoption expenses, Jamie and Todd found an odd item, a $3,800 advertising fee. She said that is money that he then reinvests in advertising to find more birth mothers. And that felt pretty gross to us, but it was like, Again, it's like all baked in. And I asked, like, can we not pay that? And she's like, if you want to adopt this child, that's part of the fee. You know those advertisements that say something like, pregnant, need help? Many of those crisis pregnancy centers work directly with adoption agencies. 
So when pregnant people reach out, they're not just told why they shouldn't get an abortion. They're told why they should choose adoption. Lexander has seen a lot of those ads, like this grid she saw on one adoption website. It had two columns. One column was what you can give your child if you parent them. And all that's written on there is love. And then here's what I can give my child if I place them for adoption. And it's like, you know, a stable two-parent home, extra money for school, the best of everything, vacations. And, and these are like already filled in by the adoption agency. Lexander is a transracial adoptee herself and placed her first child for adoption. You know, adoption is sort of the, the transfer of children from a, a family that has less resources to a family that has more. And... Of course, which families have more resources in the United States intersects with race. Three quarters of adopted parents in the United States are white. The landscape is mostly pre-adoptive white parents wanting to adopt white newborns. But the majority of adopted kids are children of color. Those racial dynamics create an awkward hierarchy of which children are most wanted. It plays out just as white supremacy plays out that those races that are perceived as being more proximate to whiteness are seen as more desirable. Every adoption profile I saw listed the race of both parents, but some of them listed something I wasn't expecting. Those parents' complexions, so people could guess what color the baby would be. Most Native Americans are more than one race were mixed more than any other racial group. Biracial children, especially those where maybe the parent of color is lighter skinned and the adoption professional can sort of frame it as like, oh, like, you know, um, this child is going to be biracial and they might be more likely to, you know, kind of blend into your family or like maybe they'll, they'll be able to pass as white. That's one possible reason Native babies are in demand. While the number of white babies being adopted has declined for decades, the number of Native babies being adopted has gone up, even with ICWA in place. And that's because adoption attorneys have figured out how to get around the law. That story, after the break. Today's episode is brought to you by FX's Reservation Dogs. The Hollywood Reporter called the first season of the original comedy a distinctive, wonderfully cast triumph of representation and ranked it the number one best TV show of 2021. This season, Reservation Dogs continues to follow our favorite gang of indigenous teens in rural Oklahoma, with each of them trying to forge their own path in hopes of one day making it to California. FX's Reservation Dogs is now streaming. Only on Hulu. This land is brought to you by Smalls. Give your feline friend protein-packed meals they'll crave with Smalls. Smalls is fresh, human-grade food for cats delivered right to your doorstep, so you too can embrace your inner house cat. All cats are obligate carnivores. They need fresh protein-packed meals. 
Conventional cat food is made with profits in mind, using low-quality, cheap meat byproducts, grains, and starches coated in artificial flavors. Smalls, on the other paw, is made with cats in mind. Smalls develops complete and balanced recipes for all life stages with leading cat nutritionists, starting with human-grade ingredients like you or I would find at the market. Smalls recipes are gently cooked to lock in protein, vitamins, minerals, and moisture. No room for fillers, no need for flavoring. Better quality ingredients means a better, healthier life for your cat. Since switching to Smalls, cats have experienced improved digestion and a less smelly litter box, softer and shinier coats, plus better breath. Take a short quiz on smalls.com slash thisland to customize your sampler and use code thisland for a total of 30% off your first order. That's smalls.com slash thisland, code thisland. When Jamie and Todd were looking at profiles for potential adoptive placements, they said yes to most of the ones they saw. And eventually, one of those mothers said yes back. She picked them. But when that mom filled out her intake form, she checked this box that the baby was Native American— You might think that meant Jamie and Todd couldn't adopt the baby because ICWA says that baby should go to a Native home. But that's not how their lawyer saw it. He told Jamie and Todd, ICWA is a thing that means you have to stay 10 extra days and pay $10,000 extra. That extra $10,000 was to pay this man. I know some people think I'm anti-Native American. Philip J. McCarthy. He's a lawyer in Arizona. There's no doubt that the history of what America has done to Native Americans is, you know, there's no way to even give an excuse for it. But when it comes to adoption, the collision here is the idea of a parent's individual rights and the rights of a tribe. We reached out to McCarthy, but he declined to talk to us. This is from a phone call Todd recorded without McCarthy knowing. Once Todd did a little research on McCarthy, he learned tribes don't have a good relationship with him. He is notorious for fighting ICWA. But Jamie and Todd didn't want to sidestep what felt like an important law. So they told their lawyer in New Hampshire they didn't want to hire McCarthy. The conversation didn't go over well. He told them, I'm representing you here. If you want to do the safest thing and get this child, you're going to use McCarthy. He's like, I'm telling you, this is high risk. This is high risk. If you don't want to use McCarthy, I would suggest that you decide not to adopt this child and you can look for another match. They discussed backing out of the adoption entirely. But like, what happens if we just decide to opt out? Like, what if we just say no? Well, then they find another family. And statistically, it'll be another white family. And, and like, which is, for me, that was this moment where it was like, it became very clear to me that, that this was a system and, like, a systematic problem that isn't solved by our individual choice. So they decided to move forward. Once the wheels were in motion, they got to see McCarthy at work. ICWA requires that when a Native child is up for adoption, their tribe is notified because the tribe has the right to intervene. But McCarthy told Jamie and Todd that didn't need to happen. 
here he is again from that phone call. But when it's a voluntary proceeding like this, the tribe doesn't have rights that are equal to a parent. And even 40 years now since it's been enacted, that's still not understood. It's like a myth that somehow the tribe has the upper hand in a voluntary proceeding. And that's just not the law. His argument is that basically a birth parent has a right to privacy, and that trumps the tribe's right to be notified. But to make sure there are no issues, McCarthy goes one step further. He also told us at that time that, um, you know, mom is probably going to sign something asking you not to contact the tribes for five years. And you may say, why five years? Well, there's a statute of limitations. And the statute of limitations says, you know, you don't want to end up with a situation where some tribes are just against adoption. I'll just tell you, the Navajos fight every adoption, period. McCarthy also picks the venue. You're probably thinking, why is this in Flagstaff? I'm surprised you didn't ask that. Yeah, he talked about how he doesn't like to go to Phoenix because the judges in Phoenix don't get it. That judge in Flagstaff got it. She agreed the tribe didn't need to be notified. And they weren't. I went from thinking that, like, they are breaking the law to thinking, oh, no, they're creating their whole a whole different alternate legal reality that they're operating under. Collectively, Jamie and Pod's adoption attorneys were paid about $35,000. And that was just the legal fees. Part of me feels really gross, even just tabulating it. It was about $50,000. I asked Jamie and Todd how they feel about the adoption now. Ugh, so it's so it's so hard. Like, okay, we have the sweetest little baby girl. It doesn't it doesn't take long to start to love a baby, right? <laughs> like like a couple hours is all that it takes. And or moments. <laughs> yeah. And and so like you know, it's it's so it's I I would just say like my feelings about it are really complicated. The way things are are structured right now are to take advantage of like families that want to have a child that can't and are desperate to, and to take advantage of mothers who are in like a desperate life situation. And and it's not it it's not a system that like really could exist if it weren't for those two ingredients. For desperation, right? Right. Like, my general fear from now until the rest of my life is that is that we are not actually a good family to raise this child. And, um, and like, that'll be that what I spend the rest of my life trying to make not happen. Jamie and Todd did reach out to their child's tribe and let them know about the adoption. The adoption still moved forward and was finalized last June. Over the past few decades, the supply chain of adoptable infants has shifted multiple times, from unwed mothers in the United States to countries like Guatemala, Russia, and Ethiopia. And now the industry has turned to foster care. Private adoption agencies have started new foster-to-adopt programs. They're taking people who really want to adopt and licensing them to be foster parents. Fostering is routinely presented as a pathway to adoption on agency websites. But even within foster care, there's still a supply and demand problem. 
there are more people signed up as foster-to-adopt parents than available children. And one state that gave us data by a ratio of 100 to 1. Jamie and Todd were even told that they should think about it. Well, also, she kept telling us, it's so much cheaper. But it didn't feel right. I just don't think I can handle the heartbreak of having a child for a year and then having them taken away. And I don't feel like it's fair to go into an adoption thinking like a a foster situation, thinking like, we're going to get to keep this child forever because that's working. It's like not what the foster care system's for. Right. It's working against um, the reunification of the family. So far this season, you've heard about two of the plaintiffs behind the federal lawsuit, the Brackeens and the Cliffords. When I look at their custody cases, I see the same problem. And it's not ICWA. It's people using foster care to adopt. Of course that resulted in heart-wrenching conflict, because that's not the purpose of foster care. People try to say that ICWA doesn't work because there aren't enough Native foster homes. But if you look at the specific custody cases behind the federal lawsuit, there's no evidence of that. Every Native child had a Native family who wanted to adopt them. For the majority of those kids, it was a blood relative. But the white families behind this lawsuit fought any Native placement that threatened their chances at adoption. And except for Robin, Piper's grandma, every other Native family lost. These foster parents, Jennifer and Chad Brackeen, Danielle and Jason Clifford, and their co-plaintiffs, the Librettis, didn't just fight ICWA. They fought to adopt a child over what their foster training told them to expect and do over kinship placements that studies and experts say are best for all children, over what federal and state laws say should have happened. But instead of asking what's wrong about what these foster parents did, we're asking what's wrong with ICWA. The story of these custody cases isn't about how ICWA prevented white families from adopting Native children, It's about how white families are getting around the law. One question haunted our reporting for months. How did the Brackeens find that law firm, Gibson Dunn? We spent months looking for any connections. We looked up everyone who worked on the case, made lists of where they went to law school and all their past jobs. We chased down a lot of bad leads. But finally, one day... We got the answer. What our investigation found after the break. Is something preventing you from achieving your goals or getting in the way of your happiness? Check out betterhelp.com slash this land. It's been a tough year, and talking to someone can really help. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours and can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. 
all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Plus, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. The service is available for clients worldwide. They have licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, trauma, anger, family conflicts, and self-esteem. Anything you share is confidential. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash this land. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash this land. After months of trying to find out how the Brackeens got connected to Gibson Dunn, one day their local Texas lawyer answered the phone. She told us that it wasn't her or the Brackeens that found Gibson Dunn. It was this other lawyer, an adoption attorney in Minnesota, who specializes in ICWA. He even helps the Brackeens find her. On the phone, she couldn't remember his name. She later confirmed it by email. But we already knew exactly who she was talking about. Because this Minnesota attorney has a national reputation for fighting ICWA. He's been part of more constitutional challenges to the law than anyone else. And his name is Mark Fiddler. I mean, I get tired of Indian people carrying around this victim mentality so that everything that happens with ICWA is like some kind of um, assault on them. I mean, you want to talk about getting out of a self-defeating narrative, um, that's a good one to get rid of, the idea that Indians are victims. Fiddler declined to speak with me for this podcast, so we're using tape from a documentary called Blood Memory. Based on our reporting, Fiddler is how the Brackeens and the Cliffords got connected to the big federal lawsuit. He was the one who made sure this case to strike down ICWA had plaintiffs. Fiddler is native himself, a citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. Here he is again from the film Blood Memory. People look at me and see a white lawyer. I've got blue eyes. So my mother said, uh, well, don't worry about um, people thinking you're Indian because your blue eyes will save you. And I thought, well, why do I need to be saved? What's that about? So there was some uh, shame growing up being identified as Indian. You know, I really wanted to blend in and... um, one of the unfortunate things, uh, I, I know racism on a very um, very personal level. Kids at school would call me chief or um, they couldn't figure out what I was. After law school, Fiddler was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. And he was concerned with how Native families were being treated by the child welfare system. And I was just seeing all these cases where these Indian families were coming into juvenile court and their kids are being removed from the home. And so, in the 1990s, Mark helped start a nonprofit to provide those families legal services, the ICWA Law Center. And we serve people for free, uh, Indian families um, throughout uh, Minnesota, and ran that about five years. As Mark tells it, he eventually left the ICWA Law Center when he became disillusioned with ICWA, because of this theory called attachment. The theory says if you remove a child from caregivers they've attached to, you can harm that child permanently. 
where children are placed in uh, non-Indian homes because they couldn't find family that was ready to take them. And then after several years, the children are removed and that attachment broken, and we damage children to comply with this uh, blanket rule about it always being best to place with family. I don't think it's in the tribe's best interest for children to be psychologically damaged and then handed over to the custody of the tribe or placed in a tribal home. So you can, in a sense, sort of destroy the child to save the village. So Fiddler says because of this change in perspective, he left the Iqbala Center. But when I talked to former employees and board members, I got a different story. They said he left abruptly and on bad terms after a disagreement with the board about how he had used grant money. Fiddler denies this, but declined to elaborate. It wasn't immediate, but after a few years, Fiddler started showing up in ICWA cases again. But this time, he was representing white families who wanted to adopt Native children. He flipped. And he managed to get some big attention for one of his early cases. All new Dr. Phil. Adoptions gone wrong. In 2005, Fiddler's clients got to tell their story on Dr. Phil. Shannon Smith remembers that Dr. Phil segment. She represented the Native mom in the case and is the director of the Equa Law Center today. Dr. Phil told her story without her voice, without contacting us. So it was really a story that was told about her instead of anyone letting her tell her story that she was someone who didn't care about her child, didn't love her child, and had abandoned her child. It was really the story as the media took off at the time. On Dr. Phil, Fiddler's clients did tell their story about how they had taken in a Native child. But because of an outdated law, that child was being taken from the only home he had ever known. The case also got a lot of local press. Ultimately, it was settled outside of court, and the white family adopted the native child. Fiddler continued to represent families fighting ICWA and started to gain a national reputation. In the early 2010s, he joined the American Academy of Adoption Attorneys and got pulled into a case that attracted national attention. Seeing Fiddler's name pop up worried Smith. And my immediate reaction was to reach out to people I knew who were involved in the case at the time and let them know of what I anticipated and what I expected based on and what I had seen in Minnesota, kind of the strategy, um, having media involved in the case in a really prominent way. And she was right. That story that did so well in the early years of Fiddler's career came back. Again, on Dr. Phil. They adopted a Native American baby until the tribe stepped in. They had to turn her over. How do you explain to a two-year-old that you might not ever see them again? You want to commit cultural genocide, steal a people's children. Are you suggesting this child was stolen? Well, we were told we couldn't adopt them because we are white and they are Indian. No, that's not yeah. white. What I hear you saying is what's best for the tribe and not what's best for the child. Next, Dr. Phil. It was bizarre to watch because the story told on Dr. Phil got repeated by CNN, NPR, The Washington Post, you name it. 
For two years, the Capabiancos raised Veronica in their South Carolina home. They had raised her for two years and were in the process of adopting her when a South Carolina family court ordered them to hand her over to the... The Campobiancos were not giving up the fight for the child they had raised and loved since birth. The case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. This one case ignited a much bigger attack on ICWA, and that's because it attracted the attention of some very powerful lawyers. Now the campaign against ICWA isn't being led by adoption attorneys like Mark Fidler or Jay McCarthy. It's being led by some of the most powerful lawyers in the country. Lawyers whose practice has nothing to do with adoption or family law or even children, but has a lot to do with something else. The corporations and industries that would make more money if Native rights went away. Next time on This Land. Given some of the players, there is ultimately an oil and gas angle. It literally could call into question all of federal Indian law. So issues like reservation status, land use, water rights, gaming. It's not about kids. It was never about kids. This Land is reported, written, and hosted by me, Rebecca Nagel, Gohin Daudon Chaleka citizen of Cherokee Nation. Additional reporting this season from Maddie Stone, Martha Troyan, citizen of Obi Shikakong, Laxul First Nation, and Amy Westervelt. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are John Favreau, Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Katie Long. With special thanks to Allison Falzetta. From Critical Frequency, our managing producer is Amy Westervelt. Our senior producer is Sarah Ventry, and our story editor is Rekha Murthy. Additional editing from Martha Troyan and Polly Danetclaw, who is Dene. Sound design by Lyra Smith, Mark Bush, and Charlotte Landis. Original score composed by Jared Tate, citizen of Chickasaw Nation. Our outro song is an honor song for adoptees, written and sung by Jerry Dearly, who is Oglala Lakota. Our fact checker is Wudan Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton, founder of the First Amendment Project. Podcast art by Kelly Gonzalez, citizen of Cherokee Nation. Additional reporting from producer Allison Herrera, who is Holon Selenin. Additional thanks for this episode to Drew Nicholas and the crew behind the documentary Blood Memory. You can find it online at bloodmemory.com. Additional thanks to Gary Diebeli and Catherine Joyce. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people find us. And please share it with your friends. If you have a tip or information to share related to our reporting, you can do that securely and anonymously through our secure drop. You can find a link in the show notes. To see a timeline of the court cases challenging ICWA, go to our website, thislandpodcast.com. This season of This Land touches on different forms of family, childhood, and racial trauma. If you feel like you could use support, please check our show notes or website 
thislandpodcast.com to find resources for adoptees and survivors of childhood trauma, abuse, foster care, and boarding schools. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it, between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are.